Today we're continuing in our sermon series, looking at Jesus is the question. We're actually coming toward the end of this series. Um, We have been looking at the many questions that Jesus asked, being led by Martin Copenhaver's book called Jesus is the Question. Um, And Martin Copenhaver is actually going to be preaching in both of our services, not next week, but the week following. Um, And he's going to be speaking at a special event alongside a panel that includes Harlan Redmond, Charlene Jin Lee, and Tom Toole, as well as myself, on the Saturday night before. So if you haven't yet registered for this, it's all free. Um, But if you haven't yet, let us know that you're interested in coming. Please do that so that we can get a sense of those numbers. Um, And it's never too late. You know, don't let that stop you. It just helps us to plan. So um, today we are looking at the question that Jesus asked his disciples when he asked them, how much bread do you have? How many loaves do you have? And as we've come to find, Jesus likes to ask questions of his disciples because Jesus appeared to believe that it is through questions that we are able to discover the more expansive truth that exists just beyond finding the right answers, that extends, the truths that extend into eternity seem to be found by examining these questions. So I'm going to invite you to look with me at Mark 8, verses 1 through 9. This will be familiar for those of you who have been around the church for a while. Jesus, he has just healed someone who is deaf. He had a conversation, a very sprightly conversation with a woman on what it meant to be a person of faith. And prior to that, he had just been chastised by the Pharisees for trying to satisfy his own hunger without following their traditions of extensive hand washing and pot washing and all of that. So Jesus is coming from an incredibly long season himself to this moment where he says, in those days when there was again a great crowd without anything to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion for the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. The disciples replied, How can one feed these people with bread here in the desert? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves. And after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute, and they distributed them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after blessing them, he ordered that these two should be distributed. They ate and were filled, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Now there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. Friends, I invite you to open your hearts and your spirits with me as we pray and seek God's truth. God, it is the fullness of of your spirit that we seek. A fullness that surpasses the experience of having a full meal, of being surrounded by warm shelter, of being embraced by people who love us. We are longing for that fullness of life that you promise us through Jesus Christ. And so we pray, God, that in this time together, you will speak that truth to our hearts that reveals that life and that helps us to share that life and that light with one another. 
Please push outside any of the distractions that exist in our hearts or in our minds today so that we might embrace your good news without hesitation. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. When we don't want to do something, our instinct is to portray that thing that we don't want to do as being impossible to achieve. One of my favorite examples of this is when you ask your kid or your teenager to do something like to pick up the socks from the ground and they respond with an amount of shock, distress, and dramatic arm flailing that could earn them a Tony Award. Suddenly, those athletic socks that are lying next to the hamper weigh about 200 pounds. And that hamper is just a little too far out of reach for them to put it in. It's easy to point at others, be it our children or other people, when we are finding some funny examples for how we make things impossible. But the truth is that adults have this same tendency. We just use different techniques. So, for example, sometimes we will increase our use of technical jargon to make whatever it is that we don't want to do sound more complicated. Explaining how we can't possibly clean out the garage this weekend because the barometric pressure is not ideal for facilitating the necessary wind patterns that will minimize dust accumulation, therefore risking the acquired assets that would benefit from the said cleaning. Most of the time, though, we don't have to work that hard in order to portray something as being impossible. Most of the time, it only takes the tone of our voice. Clean the garage this weekend with just a tone. A four-hour weekend project sounds just as likely to happen as for us to develop the ability to conjure pigs to fly. How can one feed these people with bread here in the desert? Asked the disciples. Their tone is unmistakable. They don't want to do it. So they make it sound impossible. And perhaps we would be inclined to join them in their efforts to assure them and ourselves that it really is impossible to feed 4,000 people in the desert. If the following verses didn't show us that it was actually achievable and achieved without any real strain or anxiety or sweat and elbow grease. It's understandable as to why the disciples didn't want to undertake the task of feeding the thousands. Their cursory assessment told them that it wasn't going to work without a miracle. People speckling the landscape all around them stretched out as far as the horizon and not a pot or pan between them, not a tree or a bush to pick from, not a stream of water to refresh them. Those disciples took one look at that crowd and their imaginations fast forwarded to them scrambling to make something out of nothing, fancying, facing hungry people who would eventually find a way to be angry about whatever the disciples had just given them because they're allergic to gluten or because they're on a salt-free diet. And the disciples took just 
One look at that crowd and drew a direct line to the result of them being sweaty and underappreciated in the desert, having possibly failed at their mission, doing all of that work to maybe just go hungry themselves. It's no wonder that the disciples didn't want to do it. It's no wonder that the disciples wanted to make that task seem impossible. But it wasn't impossible. Many biblical scholars have interpreted this passage in a way where the miracle of feeding the thousands is akin to the European folk tale about stone soup. Perhaps you've heard this folk tale before. We were talking about it only recently. Some travelers came into a village carrying only an empty cooking pot. They had been traveling for days and were very hungry, but the village folk were poor, and they were fearful that sharing their food would cause them to starve themselves. So then one of the travelers goes to the stream, fills the pot with water, drops a large stone in it, and places it over a fire. Watching them, one of the villagers became curious and decided to go and ask what the travelers were doing. They said that they were making stone soup, which tastes wonderful and which they would be delighted to share with the villager, though it still needed a little bit of garnish and they didn't have any of that. The villager, hungry himself, now eager to share in this meal, decides that maybe he can part with a carrot. And so then he brings his carrot and it's added into the soup. Soon another villager comes to the fire, curious about the pot. She hears the same story. And so she decides that, well, she could probably share an onion from her garden. And so it goes that as each villager came by, one new item was added to the pot of soup at a time. A handful of peas, a stick of celery, a few herbs that had been unused from the week before, a bit of salt, a small portion of meat that was too small for one person. Finally, the stone is removed from the pot and the pot of soup is shared by the travelers and the villagers alike. Many scholars believe that the feeding of the thousands was achieved in a really similar way. As the disciples produced seven loaves of bread between them, as Jesus blessed that bread and designated it for everyone, and as they started to share that bread with those who were around them, it's believed that others in the crowd also started to pull out small pieces of bread or dried fish or nuts that they had left in their pockets after three days of traveling in the desert. And rather than keeping what they had brought for themselves, they contributed what they had to the larger whole, which then resulted in everyone having enough. It was a miracle. But the miracle wouldn't have happened with the thousands in the desert if the disciples had remained detached, nonchalant, skeptical, convinced that no amount of their contribution or energy could make any impact on people's hunger. Just as the miracle wouldn't have occurred in if the villagers had remained skeptical of one another, reluctant to share whatever they were comfortable with sharing, 
in the hope that they would together make the soup taste better. Perhaps that's why the Gospel of Mark begins this whole miraculous story with Jesus' own words when he says, I have compassion for the crowd. This miracle, all of these hungry stomachs feeling full, it started with Jesus' ability to move beyond his own cursory assessment of how they could fix the problem and move instead to how they could best care for the people that were in front of them with the limited amount of resources that they could share. I have compassion for the crowd, Jesus said, because they have been with me for days with nothing to eat and a long journey home ahead of them. And the disciples respond to his compassion with that impossible tone of skepticism. To which Jesus then replies with a question. How many loaves do you have? It's funny, given the circumstances of needing to feed the thousands of people with whatever they have in their pockets, I think that when we hear Jesus ask this question, we often interpret the most important part of Jesus' question to be the part about the loaves, particularly how many of them, how realistic is it that we can feed these people? We'll know by the number. But I actually don't believe that Jesus is emphasizing the loaves, and I don't believe that Jesus is emphasizing how much. I think that for Jesus, the most important word in this question that he asks the disciples is you. How much bread do you have? What are you going to contribute? To this solution. We can often convince ourselves that unless we have the whole solution within our power, then there is really nothing that we can do. Unless we can fix the whole thing then and there, then maybe whatever small amount we can give will just make it worse. If we can't provide the person who's sitting on the off-ramp with permanent housing and a fresh start to life, then we won't even look at them and share a smile. If we can't pull the youth out of that moodiness and anxiety and witness them enjoying life, then we'll completely avoid them and just let them be. If we have a friend and we can't convince her to leave her abusive partner, then we just won't talk about it at all. We'll turn a blind eye. Like the disciples, we too can too easily dismiss our ability to affect change in possible situations. Sometimes we do that because it might feel overwhelming. And sometimes we do that just because we don't want to. But like we see in the stone soup and like we see with the feeding of the thousands, miracles often don't come from just one person. Miracles don't just come from one event. Miracles are often the result of the aggregation of marginal gains. Small, small steps that are taken consistently one after another that result in transformation. 
As writer James Clear says in his article on this subject, he writes, it is so easy to overestimate the importance of one defining moment and to underestimate the value of making small contributions on a daily basis. Too often, we convince ourselves that massive impact requires massive action. Perhaps one of the most famous stories about the effects of the aggregation of marginal gains comes from the British cycling team. In 2003, professional cyclists in Great Britain had endured nearly 100 years of mediocrity. Since 1908, British riders had won just a single gold medal at the Olympic Games, and they had fared even worse at cycling's biggest race, the Tour de France. For 110 years, no British cyclist had ever won the event. It had gotten to be so bad that when one of the top bike manufacturers in Europe, that one of the top bike manufacturers in Europe refused to sell bikes to the British team because they were afraid that it would hurt their sales if others saw the British using their gear. Then in 2003, Dave Brailsford was hired as the British cycling coach. And unlike previous coaches, Brailsford was committed to a strategy that he referred to as the aggregation of marginal gains, which is the philosophy of searching for a tiny margin of improvement across the board of everything that we do. So, Brailsford and his coaches began by making small adjustments that we would expect them to make for a professional cycling team. They redesigned the seats to make the bike seats more comfortable, and they rubbed alcohol on the tires for a better grip. They asked riders to wear electronically heated overshorts to maintain the ideal muscle temperature. And then they used biofeedback sensors to monitor how each athlete responded to that particular workout. The team tested various fabrics in wind tunnels and had their outdoor riders switch to indoor racing suits, which proved to be lighter and more aerodynamic. But then they also looked to improve the unexpected or the overlooked areas of riding. They tested different types of massage gels to see which one led to the fastest mus muscle recovery. They hired a surgeon to teach the team the best way for them to wash their hands so that they might reduce their chances of catching a cold, if only we all had that lesson in 2003. They determined the type of pillow and mattress that led to the best night's sleep for each rider. They even painted the inside of the team truck white, which helped them to spot dust that would normally slip their attention, but could degrade the performance of these finely tuned bikes. As these small improvements accumulated, the results came faster than anyone could have imagined. Just five years after Brailsford took over, the British cycling team dominated the road and track cycling events at the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, where they won 60% of the cycling gold medals that were offered that year. Four years later, when the Olympic Games were in London, they, won, they set nine Olympic records and seven world records. 
That same year, Bradley Wiggins became the first British cyclist to win the Tour de France, to be followed by his teammate the next year, Chris Froome, who then went on to win the Tour de France for the next three years, winning it in 2015, 16, and 17, giving the British team five Tour de France wins in six years. And none of this, my friends, was accomplished by making one big change. None of it was achieved by one major event. Complete transformation of a 110-year-old legacy was made in only five years by the aggregation of marginal gains, by them making small, manageable contributions to change in every conceived area. My friends, I don't believe that Jesus ever expected the disciples to work the miracle alone. That was Jesus' job. That was God's work. But it was from what the disciples offered into the situation that facilitated that miracle to happen. How much bread do you have? It's not about the amount It's about you and me. What small portion can we comfortably give to the community around us for Jesus to bless and then redistribute to everyone? What small consistent contribution can you and I make implement into this community of faith to help us all improve as a whole? I don't know what that might be for you. But I know that you have that calling on you, just as I know that I and everyone else in this room is relying upon you to exercise it. Amen.